If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and our ushers would be happy to bring one to your seat for you today. Uh, They also are going to be about passing note sheets and pencils for you so that you have uh, something to jot down any ideas or thoughts that are helpful to you. Um, If the note sheets are distracting, just ignore them. But uh, if they are a use to you, then go ahead and take one of those. Uh, We hope that it'll guide your learning this morning. Uh, We have elders meeting this Monday, so please be praying for your elders as we start to think about and plan uh, how we're hoping to glorify the Lord in the year to come. Um, You know, pretty much year to year we're doing what we always do, which is sticking close to the Scripture and glorifying our Savior and desiring to grow in grace and understanding of what He's revealed about Himself. But it helps the elders to know that... um, We are in good hands when we are prayed for, so pray that we will have wisdom, discernment, humility, and love as we approach the task of leading this church in a way that's faithful to the true head of the church, which is Christ. If you want to understand a thing better, I would encourage you to ask questions about it. When we were kids, we didn't have Google. We used to play this game called 20 Questions, and one of us would choose a particular object from a category We would keep that object in our mind as we would then all ask that one person simple yes or no questions about the object that they were thinking of. Is it animal or vegetable? Yes or no. Is it dangerous? Can I buy it at the store? Is it tangible or is it some sort of ideal? Is it male or female? That might add some confusion today with all of the uh, the propaganda in our culture right now trying to mix people's thoughts up on that, but that is still a yes or no question. (laughs) Is it bigger than a bread box? I don't know why we always ask that question. None of us grew up using bread boxes. Probably would have been more relevant to say, is it bigger than an Xbox? I don't know, but it was a fun game, and uh, these questions helped us to whittle down the picture in our mind of what that mystery thing might be, and you hoped to be able to guess it accurately within 20 questions. We would often learn something new about that object when the questions that we asked were answered differently than we expected them to be. So it's good to be inquisitive. Paul knew that his brothers and sisters in Corinth were working with an insufficient definition of godly love. This misunderstanding was at the root of many of their problems as a church and was a reflection of spiritual immaturity in these believers, many of whom came from a Gentile background and had very mixed ideas uh, as in regards to spirituality before Christ was preached to them. What's more, these Corinthian Christians were not asking the right questions about love. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul gives them the answers that they need, even if it weren't, wasn't the questions that they were asking. These answers would help put love into better focus for the Corinthians, exploring both what is love and what love is not, discussing what love does and what love cannot do. And so we will continue in our exploration of these four verses this morning as we look at verses four through seven. The Apostle Paul writes, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures 
all things. Would you bow with me as we just pray briefly and thank the Lord for what we're going to learn through his word. God, we praise you that though we have limited intellect, that we are able to think more than most of the other creation that you have made. We can reason, we can contemplate, and so I pray, Lord God, that you would be thoroughly engaged with our minds right now, particularly those who are of the Spirit, who are abiding in Christ. Would you please open our eyes up to what we need to see so that we might obey you better and worship you more uh, accurately, Lord God. And for those who are here this morning and they are not yet calling on the name of Christ, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do a reviving work in them and that you would help them to love not the things of this world, the broken things that are passing away, but that you would give them a desire for what is eternal, that you would help them to see that there is no object of our worship and praise more worthy than Christ is. And so help us to grow nearer to you as we learn and grow in our discipleship today. In Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks ago, Pastor Paul explained what it means that love is patient, meaning that it is long-suffering, it, it is willing to endure alongside brothers and sisters in faith. Uh, we learned that love is kind, that it is, uh, it is thoughtful and appreciative of others. We learned uh, the fundamental importance that is going to run throughout this list of the attributes of love, that all of these are characterized most perfectly in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Last week, we began to consider the negative definitions of what love is not. And we learned that love does not envy. It doesn't uh, look uh, covetously at what other people have. And it does not boast in what it does have. We talked about the importance of repenting from lovelessness when we fall short of this, this noble love that God is teaching to us, that we should confess that to God and ask Him for strength to love more like Christ loves. And this week we're going to continue to come to grips with what love cannot be. So remember, this is all rooted in the fact that true, actual, godly love is a reflection of the very character of God Himself. So we do not have the freedom to haphazardly define love any way that we want to define it. It is not the outflow of our feelings or our experiences. It is not a fickle product of our emotions and desires. Love is behaving according to the heart of God. And so much of what passes as love in our culture is anything but love. For instance, we learned this morning that godly love is not arrogant. Now, this descriptive verb, arrogant, is very closely related to the term that came before it. Love does not boast. Both verbs suggest, if you look back at the root of where those words came from, they suggest an, an inaccurate inflation of the self. The boaster literally spews hot air. They're like a windbag, constantly talking about themselves and how great they think they are. The arrogant the word that we get arrogance from in the Greek means to, to literally be puffed up as with air. So this individual is believing themselves to be far more praiseworthy than they actually are. Their view of themselves is swollen. So boasting is actually an outward expression of an inward arrogance. Therefore, Paul is likely drilling in a little deeper into that flaw of character that he's been seeing manifest itself among the Corinthian church a flaw that he hopes to persuade them away from, helping them to understand that not only boasting, but the arrogant heart that leads to boasting are incompatible attributes if our goal is to love with a godly heart. Have you ever wondered and marveled 
at the fact that so many vulnerable people often find themselves drawn to arrogant people. You ever notice that in our culture today? The pompous and the proud show character flaws that they really don't even try to hide, and yet others can't seem to help but be intrigued by them and even admire them in a way that ironically feeds their self-absorption. So you might see a cocky professional athlete who constantly talks down on his opponent or brags about his own skills and acts like he's the greatest to ever play the game. Meanwhile, he can't keep himself out of the news with all of his DUIs or his assault and battery charges, and yet still people put pictures of them up on, on their walls. They, they idolize them and they want to be like these athletes. We might think about the, cel- the celebrities who make a living pretending to be what they are not, right? Pretending to be somebody that they aren't, and yet they think that their opinions need to be broadcast to the world and their political ideas or their moral points of view are constantly put on display. And weirdly, every time that happens, people seem to be listening to them and liking their comments and applauding their, their outward expressions. You might think of that young, inconsiderate jerk who seems to have a long line of naive young girls lining up to let him break their hearts. We see that often the vulnerable are, some, for some reason, drawn to the arrogant. Why do arrogant people get so much attention from others? And I think there might be a few reasons to that. Let me mention just a couple. First of all, we have to recognize here that every person is a sinner. Not just the handsome, not just the beautiful, not just the successful. Every person is a sinner. And in our sin, other sinful people wish that they could be arrogant as well. Some people are not meek and lowly because they have longing and loving hearts and they, a burning desire. Remember we talked about that word zeloi last week, that passion that can be used for bad or for good. A lot of those who are quiet and, and seem gentle in spirit, they're not necessarily that way because they love the Lord, but rather because they simply lack those aggressive attributes that are useful for boasting and for arrogance. Given a turn of fortune, we might see them behaving like the big-headed, like the pompous blowhards that often take advantage of them or look down on them. But if they were in the position of power, they might do exactly the same thing. So folks are sometimes drawn to the arrogant because they dream of one day sinning like the arrogant do. They imagine that brand of sin is much more enjoyable than the unspectacular, unheralded failures of the common man. Don't we see that sometimes when someone suddenly comes into a a large sum of money or does something noteworthy and catches a lot of attention all of a sudden, begins to act differently than they were before they received this little bit of praise? So arrogance is not only the pitfall of the elite. It can stumble a man or woman of any station. And I leave with that because I don't want us to go into this with this outward-focused idea that, yes, I know some arrogant people, I know some boastful people, but I'm not one of those. These are sins that are common to the heart of every man and woman and need to be kept in check. I think there's another reason why sometimes people are drawn to the arrogant. Because to be shown even the smallest degree of love by someone who seems to need no one's love, that is often perceived as a treasure of sorts. You might see a battered woman 
who remains in a relationship with her abuser for this very reason. No one has the energy to be despicable all the time. And those little moments when that arrogant tyrant seems to show something like love to that woman, some concern for their victim, makes that woman feel so special and cared for that they think they've caught lightning in a bottle. And they keep coming back in hope for more. And that's not every victim's story, but it happens in the world today where the arrogant make others feel that they're so blessed to have even a little attention from them that folks continue to cling on to them and give them attention. Sadly, the arrogant are usually able to find some misled audience that's willing to applaud their self-centeredness, which only encourages greater levels of narcissism in them. Paul here hopes to, uh, to do the opposite for the Corinthian church. The metaphor of the body of Christ, remember, is still in view for him having been shared just a few verses earlier in chapter 12, and we're going to look at that in just a little, while, a little while. The strength of that metaphor lies in the interconnectedness that it illustrates about the people who follow after Jesus. The church is not an alliance of free agent spiritual entrepreneurs who are trying to figure stuff out on their own and perhaps even outdo their rival Christians. It is an interconnected organism, and the health of each part is contingent upon the health of the whole. Arrogance begins internally with an increasing confidence in the self, but arrogance is a threat to the health of the body of Christ because it comes with a corresponding decreasing concern for anyone besides the self. As a person's picture of themselves enlarges, often it makes them see others less. So the result is, an arrogant person feels justified treating other people as less significant than themselves because they have such a high view of their own person. It doesn't necessarily start that way, friends. But the more a person admires the image they see in the mirror, the more drab and uninteresting others around them appear to be. Paul's next warning goes hand in hand with this idea of arrogance. So for the most part, we're going to address them together this morning. Godly love is not arrogant, and godly love is not rude. Perhaps the English word rude does not carry as much force as the Greek word that is translated as rude here. Askemunai is a Greek term that means to act shamefully or disgracefully, to behave in a manner that is inappropriate. So this exact word has shown up once before in our letter, although it wasn't very obvious if you think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul is addressing some of the sexual immorality that was happening in Corinth, he says in verse 36, If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, then let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. And so Paul in that section was talking about how it is indeed noble if you can stay single and worship the Lord with all of your focus and attention and energies, that that is a good thing to do. But he warns here, if you've got a woman that you have been betrothed to, if there was a promise made that if you're going to get married, you're going to marry this person, but then you begin to behave inappropriately towards that individual. That means you're not doing what the Lord said you should do in a relationship like that. The relationship is getting too physical. It is getting too involved. You're beginning to act as though you're in covenant, even though you are not. And the remedy to that is if you're betrothed to this person, Paul says, by all means, enter into that covenant. 
Don't just pretend that you are being married, but if you're two individuals focused on the Lord together, then love one another in grace. Enter into the covenant of marriage and and follow what God has ordained marriage should be. In any culture, there are going to be certain social norms, patterns of behavior that, if broken, show a disregard for the honor of the person being addressed. How you talk to someone properly. How you show deference to those who are disadvantaged or hurting. How do you treat your elders? And how does that differ from the way that you interact with children? How you honor and respect a person's independence and privacy and personal rights. These are all aspects of the social norms that any culture has to develop for itself. And in secular culture, these norms come and they go. And we're seeing that in our nation today as some of those social norms that we have cherished for many, many, many years are starting to become less important to people. We're just giving away some of these freedoms. We're treating each other with less respect than we did before. And it's, I think, a sad commentary on the direction that our society is often headed in. But the culture of the church ought to be more stable than that. We are less fickle than the secular world because it is grounded in the ultimate truth of God's word and not in a relativistic pragmatism that can change and shift upon a whim. Our social norms are not something we had a committee and we got together and we decided this would be good for society. Rather, these are the things that God from his throne has declared our best for the ways that we interact with each other. So when we go to the word of God, we're not getting advice from him. We are getting his commands. And as his people, we are covenanted with him to follow those commands. We have said yes to his lordship in our lives. He is our king and our guide, and so he should determine what our culture is like. And when a person begins to adapt an arrogant view of themselves, they're tempted to throw these social norms out the window because they place value not on the individual so much as on the ability of a society of people to interact peacefully with one another. Social norms are for the group, and an arrogant individual doesn't need that because they're self-sufficient. They're good enough to do it all on their own, or at least they are in their own minds. And so the result of this shift towards an arrogant self-perception results often in very rude behavior. It results in rudeness in speech, where people are no longer willing to listen to others because they don't think they have anything worth worth hearing. They're quick to cut others off because they just want to hear their own voice. They want to say what they have to say because they're already convinced in their minds that what they have to say is probably superior than what they're going to hear from anyone else. They have a tendency to use degrading insulting language, or to crack jokes at the expense of those who are more vulnerable. These are the ways that the arrogant sidestep those societal norms when it comes to speech and communication. There's rudeness and lack of consideration. The idea of survival of the fittest is more appealing to the fit. And so those who are arrogant believe that they're going to survive just fine. So they pay very little attention to those who are weak, or who are behind the curve, they don't look out for anybody but number one. And they let those who are below them just fight it out for the scraps. Rudeness manifests itself through the arrogant in the ways that they treat others like they have little value, or that their rights don't matter as much as the arrogant person's personal agenda. And so they disrespect others' time. They don't give others the opportunity to contribute or participate in group settings. There's a a quickness then to marginalize those who are not like the arrogant person is. The arrogant 
are fond of treating others as if they are not made in the image of God. And so for the world, what is rude and what is perfectly acceptable is a bit of a a moving target and can change significantly from one generation to the next, from one zip code even to the next. But for a Christian, the standard is more clear and it should be universal wherever we take our faith. If it is not consistent with God's example of love, then it is behavior that we must deem inappropriate. Our words, our ways of interacting with each other should mimic the kind of grace and long-suffering and kindness that we have seen from our Savior. Rudeness counteracts that call. A person who is arrogant, who thinks more of themselves than they ought to, often thinks of themselves as belonging to a category beyond the other people around them and begins to adapt a dismissive attitude towards those who share their community. And so relationships become more like a disposable uh, resource that that arrogant person can use if it's useful to them, but that is not particularly critical to their well-being. You have nothing to offer me, thanks the arrogant, because I am fine without you. I can do everything on my own. God would beg to differ with that kind of an attitude, though, wouldn't he? Yes, if you are in Christ, you have all that you need in him. But the Lord has indeed commanded you to live a life that is intertwined with others who are also relying on Christ for their everything. Even if you don't seem to have anything that I need, you also are beloved of my God on whom I rely. And so my love for you is in fact a love for him. I cannot just disregard loving you because I don't think you have something for me. That is not how the family of God operates. We are to care for one another because when we care for one another, we're caring for Christ. We need to watch out, friends, because arrogance is not always blatantly extroverted. It is not as obvious as we often think it is. Of course, we have those examples in our culture of extremely arrogant and narcissistic people, and it's easy to point to them and say, well, I'm not like that lady. I'm not like that guy. But it can exist in some unlikely places, this arrogance and this rudeness. A person does not have to declare that he thinks little of you. He can instead operate as if you're not even there. This, too, is extremely rude. Not every arrogant or rude person wants to have 100,000 followers on Instagram. Some just rudely wish that lesser people would stay out of their way, could care less whether they even exist. So just because you are able to avoid the extreme expressions of a particular sin, such as arrogance or rudeness, that does not prove that you don't struggle with that sin. The Corinthians, who brought extra food for their friends at the love feast, weren't outwardly scorning the poorer believers that sat to the side wishing they had food, but their their absence of consideration and, and concern for those who were hungry and thirsty was a painfully rude way to treat someone who's supposed to be a part of your family. Arrogance can be sneaky. One veiled form of arrogance, and a lot of people don't think about it this way, is if you never ask anyone else to ever pray for you. Oh yeah, you're quick to to receive prayer requests from everybody else. You check back with them later to see how things are going. 
you're happy to lift somebody else up. But if you never ask for prayer, if you're never brokenhearted about the things that are going on in your life and recognize that your brothers and your sisters are a resource that the Lord has put into your life <clears throat> to be a support and a help to you, isn't there a tinge of arrogance in that? Now, some may think, well, my stuff's not all that important and you know, I, I think I can you know, just take care of it by myself. But really, you can't. You can't take care of it by yourself. Isn't that the message of salvation? That we are saved by grace. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. If we are alive in Christ, it is because someone saw in us what we couldn't see about ourselves, that we can't do it alone. God himself from on high sees in us brokenness and hopelessness and despair. And in grace, though he owes us wrath because he is a God of justice, decides instead to give us the love that we've not earned from him. So we should not be one of those who never needs prayer. And, you know, I'm, I'm just going to keep it to myself. I'm never going to tell anybody else when I'm struggling. I'm never going to open up to anyone. Even though I call them family, I'm not going to treat them like that. This is a sin that can creep up on us. And many who don't think they struggle with this kind of lovelessness, because that's what it boils down to, is you're not loving your community enough to let them be what God has ordained them to be for you. If we don't have this awareness, then we might go on living not only without love, but without being close to those whom God has called us to love. I want us to examine two passages this morning that illustrate a kind of spectrum of self-focus to help us see more vividly what it means to be arrogant and what it means to reject arrogance and rudeness and to live in a more Christ-like manner. So turn to 1 Kings chapter 12 to begin with. We are entering into the timeline of Israel uh, under the old covenant of Abraham and Moses and now David where Solomon, one of the great kings, has passed away. And in his place, his son Rehoboam has taken the throne over the 12 tribes. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Rehoboam went to Sheshem, for all Israel had come to Sheshem to make him king. And we look down at verse 6 in 1 Corinthians 12. It says, Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. So their advice to this young upstart king, be a servant to the people that you are leading. Don't just dominate them, but care for their needs. Be careful to think about what is best for them. Look out for their good. And then when you speak to them as their king, speak good words to them. When they ask you a question or when they're upset about something, when you respond, speak good words. The word good there is tov, which in, in the Hebrew was the same word that God declared when he made the heavens and the earth and he declared it good. We're talking about something that is qualitatively good, but also something that is morally good. Speak the right words to these people. Where do those words come from? They come from the revelation of God. So be careful to lead them in a godly way. If you do this, instructed these elders, they will in turn follow your lead. They will be willing to serve and support your leadership 
indefinitely. As you care for them, they will follow your lead in caring for you and the needs of Israel itself. Now look at verse 8. But Rehoboam abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? Now this yoke that is being mentioned here was in reference to the many taxes that were necessary to support such a thriving and expanding nation. And it also refers to the labor that Solomon had required to build the temple and the king's dwelling place and accomplish the defense of the land. There was a fatigue that had set into the people of Israel and they were eager for a bit of relief from those who were in leadership above them. A time of rest and recuperation would do them well. And so they were calling out for this. Verse 10, And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your fathers made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I discipline you with scorpions. So what are these advisors telling young Rehoboam to say? They're advising him to say, my father was a mighty man, but I'm even mightier. And you might feel a little worn out by what he demanded of you, but I'm going to wear you out even more. So get used to this. My hand will be heavier than his. You see the poison in this young ruler's intentions? Rehoboam abandoned the good counsel of the men who had served under his father and listened instead to those who were like who? Who were like him. Listened to his peers, those whose ideas most accurately matched what his own ideas were. Rehoboam's arrogance towards the people that he was called to shepherd revealed that the wisdom God had given to his father Solomon was not something Rehoboam inherited. The nation heard his egotistical reply, for he indeed did take the counsel of his peers, and the Israelites were not impressed. By the end of this very chapter in 1 Kings, the unrest was so great that the ten northern tribes had rejected Rehoboam and they had called a man named Jeroboam to be their king. The called people of God were divided from that point forward, and two parallel histories flow out of that act of arrogance and rudeness. So Paul's description of love here in 1 Corinthians 13 is poetic. It is beautiful, but there is also seriousness to this tone. Paul uses this opportunity to help the individuals in Corinth realize that they could not mess around with love. They could not afford to just love half-heartedly with each other. If these believers do not begin to treat one another with a kind of love that was perfectly displayed in their Savior Jesus Christ, then there's a great risk that they may very well become divided and start to see one another as enemies rather than brothers and sisters in Christ. But what does it look like when love functions apart from this self-centered arrogance? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. <clears throat> Matthew 25. Now this is often referred to the, as the Olivet Discourse. And I know that many people, when they hear Matthew 25, their 
first thought is eschatology. Let's, let's start arguing with each other. Yeah, all right. But I want us to look at this passage of Scripture and think about how it displays a sense of humility. Matthew chapter 25, 31 through 40, starting with 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And this is Jesus speaking of whom? Of Himself. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on His left. And then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now this is pointing forward to the day of the Lord, which... Every day is the Lord's day, right? But when we read in Scripture that formula, the day of the Lord, that combination of words is almost invariably speaking to the day of judgment, a day of reckoning. Now, I acknowledge that there's much debate about whether the Olivet Discourse was speaking about things that have already come to pass in our perspective on history, namely the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And I think there's much to be said about that. I think much was pointing directly to that event, which would happen just a few decades after it was preached by Christ. That important historical development was likely in view for a good portion of this and the preceding chapters. But by the time we get to verse 31 here in chapter 25, I think it's extremely likely that Jesus is no longer talking about the temple, but rather he's looking beyond it to the final judgment. The judgment of Judaism by the destruction of the temple was necessary, but it was not in any sense the consummation and wedding feast that this latter portion of the discourse anticipates. We hear about these these virgins who are trimming their lamps and getting ready for a celebration and a reunion. That doesn't seem to describe what happened in AD 70. So I think we're looking now at the final days. and We begin to see how that folds out in verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, I was thirsty, and you gave me drink, says Christ. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And he's saying these things to those who are on his right, those who he has identified as his own sheep and not goats. These are all loving actions, aren't they? Actions that come from a heart that is not so wrapped up in the self that it cannot empathize with the hardships of others, especially of brothers and sisters who are suffering due to their association to Christ. We haven't seen this need as clearly in the church today as most American Christians are not in danger of impoverishment or imprisonment or starvation. They hardly lack those bare necessities such as clothing that are provided in that previous set of verses. But a heart like this counsels the heartbroken and seeks out the lonely, and cares for the needs who have suffered from hardship. And that can happen in a church anywhere. We still see evidences of this humble, considerate love, even in a time when persecution is light. And who's to say that it's going to remain light, church? We're in a time when the Lord may be moving us towards a, a period of history where to be a Christian hurts more, where to be a follower of Christ is going to require a little bit of courage, Because the the society is not applauding our gathering today. Rather, they're finding every reason conceivable to condemn our being together and not parroting the narrative of the lost world. So we may be headed towards a time where we might have to be clothing the naked 
and visiting our brothers and sisters who are in prison for preaching the gospel or standing for the truth. Now let us consider the reply of these loving, sincere saints who will soon be placed in the right hand of God and honored with acceptance into the heavenly expression of his kingdom. Verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? How do we make sense of this answer from these faithful followers? Firstly, perhaps they aren't quite understanding what Jesus means, as their first instinct is to take him literally. Uh, These are saints who, if this is the last day, have been resurrected and are near to the Lord for a final reckoning. And they don't know how they could have done these things for Christ because the vast majority of believers will have never walked the earth at the same time that Jesus did when he had flesh. And they could not have, no way, literally accomplished these acts of love toward him directly. But there's also a kind of, I think, humble forgetfulness in their reply. They had not fed the hungry because they wanted to carve another notch on their belt or get a gold star by name. They hadn't visited the brethren behind bars so that they could post about it on their social media and appear pious to others. These sheep aren't arrogant and boastful. They love those around them simply because Jesus had shown love to them. And they wanted to be like their Savior and reflect that love to those who needed it the most. For these believers, their right hand was very unaware of what their left hand was doing while they lovingly tended to the needs of others. And so they don't consider themselves worthy people, especially in light of their knowledge that any good thing that comes from their own lives has to be fully credited to the work that Christ has done in them to turn them from their sin and turn them towards grace. So that explains this sense of confusion. When did we feed you? When did we clothe you, Christ? But listen to the response that Jesus gives. And the king will answer them truly. I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. As you cared for the church, which is the bride of Christ, which is the body of Christ, you are caring for Christ himself. When we lovingly care for the church, we love one another because we have been loved by Christ. And when we love one another in this way, we're actually loving Christ because we are living out the loving commandments that he has given to us. Now, it is not always easy to know how we can best live out this kind of long-suffering love, especially when we consider that as God's people, we are called to herald the truth, aren't we? We're called to refuse compromise. We're called to to bring light to false doctrine and those who would lead the sheep astray to those wolves in sheep's clothing. So how does the Christian avoid arrogance when they have come to believe that the way they view the world is far better than the way that every other worldview thinks of life? How do we not become arrogant? How can we be shrewd as serpents, gentle as doves, and as humbly loving as our Savior, Jesus Christ. We must be cautious about this, church, because arrogance and love are not compatible. Properly, this section of Scripture is focused on the church loving the church, but we know that Scripture does not allow Christians to love the church alone. We are a people of love, and we're to have a kind of love that extends outward towards the lost as well. Why? Because they are made in the image of our holy God. 
And so we must honor them. We must see the beauty of what God has created and call it good like he did. Why should we love those outside of the church? Because they could be our elect brothers and sisters. We might, serving a few, we might be serving a future member of our family when we care for those who are not yet trusting in Jesus Christ. Why should we love beyond the borders of our church? Because God has shown great love to us, though we are nothing compared to him. He did not only love within the borders of heaven. He loved those who rebelled against the gates of heaven. He cared for those who were far beyond redeemable. And he loved us to himself. So arrogance then is especially dangerous. And it's especially dangerous for the Corinthians for two reasons. First of all, arrogance and rudeness stunts a person's ability to grow spiritually. When you are arrogant, you might think you're getting the best for yourself, but you're crippling yourself because the arrogant cannot grow in grace the way they need to. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You can be a proud Christian. It's possible to be a Christian and to hold a sense of pride that is inappropriate and should be foreign to the love that you've seen in Christ. So don't set yourself up to be disciplined by your Father. The Lord opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If you desire the grace of God, then walk humbly as a servant of your King. The arrogant do not receive correction or admonition well, do they? They don't listen to others. They don't consider their their perspective or their experience. When you love others, you want the best for them to the degree that you're willing to actively help them pursue what is their best. And that often means calling attention to areas that person might need to grow in. It means exhortation. It means challenge. It means correction. But praise God, faithful are the wounds of friends. For when a friend is loving enough to us to come and share with us something they see that is wrong in our lives and point us again to Christ, we should rejoice in that. But if your heart is arrogant, will you rejoice in it? If you believe you are sufficient without the help of the body of Christ, will you rejoice in that? If you believe you understand the word perfectly, you don't need elders to to point you in the right direction. You don't need those who are older than you to come alongside you and, and give you help as you understand. Then will you receive that correction? The answer is no. An arrogant person will likely respond with disgust or even completely disregard the intended help of a brother who challenges him. There is evidence in this letter that Paul was contending with that kind of arrogant attitude among the Corinthian church. The man who is with his father's wife is an example of that kind of arrogance coming to church in this obviously sinful union. And sadly, the people there weren't loving him enough to confront that. And to make it clear that he could not worship the Lord well under that kind of behavior. Without humility, you have put a glass ceiling on your ability to grow as a disciple. But there's a second reason, and it is more relative directly to the Corinthian church at hand. Arrogance and rudeness fractures the unity of the body of Christ. It is a divisive wedge that, if not tended to, will create greater and greater cracks within the closeness of the body of Christ. Recall the words that Paul shared with these believers just a few verses ago in chapter 12. I mentioned it earlier. Let's look at those words again. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 21 through 26. They cannot say to, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In light of how the self-centered nature of boasting and arrogance and rudeness are counterproductive to the health of the body of Christ, the next aspect of Paul's definition is very timely. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13, not only does, God, does love not boast, not only is it not arrogant, not only is it not rude, but godly love does not insist upon its own way. When we operate as the body of Christ, we shouldn't consider how our decisions and directions impact not only ourselves, but the, the other members of the body of Christ. Shouldn't we consider that? I love what Gordon Fee uh, says about this. I'm going to quote him here. He's a commentator on this book, has a lot of wonderful insight into this, uh, this passage. He says, In some ways, this is the fullest expression of what Christian love is all about. It does not seek its own. It does not believe that finding oneself is the highest good. It is not enamored with self-gain, self-justification, or self-worth. To the contrary, it seeks the good of one's neighbor or enemy. And isn't that a unique feature of Christian love? That we are to love not only those who love us, not only those who are like us, but those who would kill us. That we are to love those who would strip our freedoms away. That we are to pray for their good and ask the Lord to draw them to himself so they might know the peace and the joy and the contentment that we have found and can only be found in Christ the body of Christ operates best when the various parts are diligent to look out for the well-being of the whole and not just for their own needs. You know, this, this is something I need to get better at. When I think about the body illustration and how that body picture so vividly expresses how the church is supposed to operate, how many times have I gone out in the summertime? I'm, it's fall now. I'm glad for that. Very glad for that. Because the winter's going to come, it's going to get cold, and we're going to get tired of that, and we're going to say, God, bring the summer. And guess what's going to happen when the sun first comes out? I'm going to be a dummy, and I'm going to run outside with my shirt off, and I'm going to go swimming, and I'm going to spend all day out in the sun, and what's going to happen to part of my body? It's going to come back looking as red as a couple of shirts we have in here, right? I'm going to get burnt to a crisp. Now, after that happens, and invariably, not only does it happen to me, but because I'm not the perfect daddy, it happens to my precious little babies, who are all super fair-skinned as well. We, we go out to the pool. We get roasted alive by the sun. For several days, that should be a lesson to us, that we must consider every member of the body of Christ, right? We can't afford to look over any member of the body of Christ because when one part hurts, all of us hurt. And I tell you, when my son is scorched and I've got that itchy, tingly feeling and I can't wear certain clothes because the rest of the body is uncomfortable as well. So church, we need to be aware of our brothers and sisters. We need to be paying attention to those who are next to us because our actions don't just affect us. They affect the whole body of believers here. I want us to consider how the Ten Commandments so frequently address the error of living for one's own good at the expense of someone else's good. Think about it. What does the second table of the law tell us? 
It says, honor your father and your mother, right? You're not completely independent. Maybe you are going to go on and do great things, but don't forget, your mom and your dad took care of you for a long time. And they made sacrifices to make you who you are today. And even if they weren't perfect, the scripture doesn't say honor your good mother and your good father. It says honor your mother and father. We are called to learn to give honor to that parent who sustained us and who at least gave us life. It says do not kill, right? Do not murder. Consider the life of your neighbor as precious, not just your own life, but care for them. Do not deceive them. Do not bear false testimony against them. Do not steal from them. Do not commit adultery against your neighbors uh, with your neighbor's spouse. Don't do that. Consider the love that they have for one another. Consider how that's going to fracture their household. Do not covet. Don't be so discontent with what God has given to you that your, your neighbor's fortune is like a reminder of your own misfortune. Don't think that way towards your neighbor. Don't be hostile towards them. This other thinking is so central to all of God's law. And I really love how Pastor John MacArthur sums up the thrust of this part of the Ten Commandments. We read from a sermon that he preached on it. Ten Commandments, the summary of God's law, God's moral law. The first part deals with God and the second part deals with man. The first part, our relationship with God. The second part, our relationship to men. The first part can be summed up in these words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second part can be summed up in these words, love your neighbor as yourself. So that if you love God perfectly and you love your neighbor perfectly, you will fulfill the whole law. You will never violate God and you will never violate anyone else. Therefore, Romans 13, 10 says, love is the fulfilling of the whole law. So don't think of that Decalogue as some outdated code of conduct that only applied to the theocratic nation of Israel, but recognize that this is a pillar of moral conduct that governs our steps today, that this is how we are to love one another. This is how we are to put ourselves second instead of insisting constantly on our own way. The second table of the law goes out the window when we become arrogant and self-inflated. And while I think that many young Christians make the mistake of focusing too much attention on the second table and not enough attention on the first, they, they love people, they love church, they're swept up with the relationships they have at church, but they're not growing in their closeness to the Lord. I think that the more you walk with Christ, the more mature you get with Him, there's an opposite danger in that we become so focused on the first table and our relationship with God becomes so vertical that we sometimes forget to love one another as He has commanded us to do so. You don't go to a man and say, man, I really like hanging out with you, but your wife, I can't stand her. And the church is the bride of Christ. So if we're to love Jesus, then we're to love his bride as well. The second table is important too. To begin our service today, we read the first part of Philippians chapter 2. And to close, I'd like us to return our thoughts to that passage. Paul wrote, uh, wrote there in chapter 2 verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. How much should we do from selfish Nothing, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, 
Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's tempting to let a passage of Scripture like this powerful admonition to the Philippian church drive us only to introspection. We go home thinking, wow, how how do I fall short of that? Where can I become better at loving others? And what do I do well? What do I do weekly? How do I need to start picking up new practices and habits that will help me with these things? But this passage will do us infinitely more good if it draws our attention to something greater than ourselves. Christ was ultimately and perfectly humble, was he not? Do we have a better picture anywhere of someone who thought not only of his own needs, but of the needs of others and was willing even to hurt and suffer and go to the cross and be shamed in front of all for sins that he didn't even commit so that weaklings like us would be drawn into the mighty family of God. Christ was unified perfectly with the Father and the Spirit, and through his blood, he unified sinners like us to the same God. Christ counted the redemption of others as more significant than his own safety, his own comfort and honor, even to the point of giving his life. This is the true godly love that Paul wants us to have in view. So let us rejoice in it in thankfulness. Father, we praise you for you are good and holy and we can know love because you are love and through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, your perfect son, our sin has been defeated and what was once enmity between us is now embrace. You love us as your own and that should have implications that flow beyond our vertical relationship, Lord God. So help us to think carefully about 1 Corinthians 13 and let us put ever before ourselves the example of your son Christ's love for us as we desire to love one another. May you be glorified as your church operates as a healthy and beautiful family. We know we could not be this apart from you. We declare you, Father, as the head of this household, And so, God, if we need correction and admonition, we trust that you will love us enough to give it. Fill us with your spirit, Lord God, and help us to enjoy the rest of this Lord's day as we characterize our time spent by seeking after you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.